This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and we're all here back in our respective homes. I'm here with Richard Lawson, Vanity Fair's film critic. Hello. And Mike Hogan, Vanity Fair's digital director. Hello. And on the West Coast, Joanna Robinson, Vanity Fair's senior writer. Yes. We're all back in our offices and homes because award season is in the thick of things. There's a lot going on pretty much every weekend between now and the Oscars. And this past weekend... We're both the Producers Guild Awards, which are not televised, but had some interesting stuff going on. And then on Sunday night, there were the SAG Awards, which in some ways are my favorite award show because they last about two hours. They have all the TV and film stars. Everyone seems pretty grateful. And you get in, you get out without any uh And fuss. you get the, the great little bumpers at the beginning, like, I'm so-and-so and I'm an actor. I really like that. Yeah. It's fun. You do? I do. I know oh it's kind of corny, God. but I I just like to see who they pick and think about why they picked them. And We're a podcast divided because Mike and I do not like those things. Yeah, yeah I, well, we I discussed this, this in Slack Yeah, on I know. Night. On Sunday night in Slack. I was kind of horrified that you guys were such haters. So this year it was uh, <laughs> Kerry Washington, Jeff Bridges, Sterling K. Brown. L.A. Kemper. L.A. Kemper. Kemper. I thought yeah. that Jeff Bridges this was funny. This is kind of subtle yeah. to Trump about nepotism and privilege. And, you know. <laughs> I didn't think about that. Yeah. Well, and Kerry Washington said something about being an actor. You bring empathy to. Yeah. I mean, they, they were subtly pointed, I think, at uh, our And I think L.A. Kemper stepped on her own punchline at one point. Something happened where she didn't quite land her joke. Well, she got a lot of laughs from the people at her table. So, you know, you can't yeah. blame her. But anyway, the kind of general theme of this episode, which I think is unavoidable, is the intersection of politics and award shows, which happened a lot at the PGAs and SAGs over the weekend. And I'm pretty sure we'll continue through the Oscars. We're going to talk amongst ourselves about those award shows. Our own Rebecca Keegan will join us. She was at the PGA, so she can report back on that. And then we'll be talking to the director and producer of the short film The White Helmets, which is about Syrian relief workers who are working in Aleppo in the most horrific war zones imaginable, who, uh, thanks to a recent executive order, probably will not be attending the Oscars, as was originally intended. But first, should we talk about the kind of shallow stuff about awards, like who won at the SAGs? Yes. Yeah, let's do some shallow <laughs> stuff to ease our way into the yeah. grim yeah, horror. Yeah, so uh, it was all kind of as expected until Denzel Washington won the Best Actor Prize. I yeah. think all of us can say we were surprised by that. Yes. It was yes. the biggest piece of acting that Casey Affleck has done this <laughs> in the past two years when he sort of had to change from shock 
and maybe a little horror to sort of a you know, like appreciative nod and you yeah know, it was um it was a, quite a performance how uh, great what a wonderful thing denzel yeah, <laughs> yeah i yeah. need to look up yeah. there must be a gif of this because you could just register a lot of emotion on his face in a very short i did watch time. it over and over again it's hard because it was one of those little insets you know so i almost made a gif of it but it was very small if you really slowed it down he actually makes as many faces as winona did <laughs> oh, all at, just all yeah. at once. Um, people should go look up. Someone made an animated GIF of Winona Ryder on stage while David Harbour's giving a speech, and her eyes are going everywhere. And they have like an animated slice of pizza that, that her <laughs> oh eyes are God. following. It's you guys, pretty I amazing. Us- I usually don't like that stuff. It is perfect. It's really perfect. It's really good. It's well executed. Uh, yeah. Well, Stranger Things winning was another surprise, but you know we're here focused on movies. So I mean, we've talked about Casey Affleck. We've talked about his potential issues in award season a lot. Do we think that people just said, "Wait, we actually like Denzel, and we don't." really like Casey. Let's give it to him. I tweeted out that night. I said that felt pointed. Mm. It could just be a fluke. You know, you think back to a year when Viola Davis won for The Help and then Meryl Streep went on to win the Oscar for Iron Lady. Mm-hmm. And so the SAGs and the Oscars don't always match up, you know, so maybe Casey's chances aren't dented at all. But I don't know, something about that felt like some course correction or something. I don't know. I mean, it is worth noting, I think, that Denzel Washington had never won a SAG award, which really shocked me so when he won the oscar for glory the sag awards didn't exist yet they only started in the mid 90s and then he lost out for training day to russell crowe for a beautiful mind so it's weird so there was yeah. kind of a overdue sense of him at the sags i don't well, know how much our, people think of that our but. colleague uh krista smith talks about denzel and how hollywood views him you know this is a guy who makes a lot of money for hollywood every year you know in this year at his age he was on a horse in magnificent seven he directed fences and also starred in it so there is probably a little bit of lifetime achievement mixed with i wish i were you type stuff going on with these awards i think Mm -hmm. when you see brian cranston win over a lot of people that may have had arguably better performances you see people just being like i want to be you Mm -hmm. like that you're the dream yeah and denzel's the dream kind of i mean he's legit and he makes a ton of money yeah does that philosophy not carry over to something like the golden globes because it's a hollywood foreign press and it's not really the same sort of aspirational but the sag since they're actors voting for actors I hadn't thought about that. That's interesting. Yeah, and and I think it applies to the Oscars, too, because it's also actors and industry people rather than whatever the hell the Hollywood Foreign Press Association is. Well, and you think about Fences, which is, uh, if anything, an actor's movie. I mean, it's a writer's movie as well, obviously, with August Wilson. But, I mean, that movie is putting acting on display. And, you know, both Denzel and Viola Davis just get to do a ton of work. I mean, she obviously won the Supporting Actress statue. So there's, you know, there's an appeal in that movie more to actors, maybe, than cinematographers or production designers. And it's also relevant. I mean, both Manchester and Fences are relevant this year, but on the side of the culture wars that Hollywood is clearly coming down on, Fences is more to the point, I think. You know, the whole story is this guy who at the beginning is seething with resentment because he's a sanitation worker, Denzel's character, and, you know, they make him stand on the back of the truck. They never let him drive. And he's the first one who stands up and gets to drive. And it's those little things, those little indignities over time that we're seeing sort of going back to like we're going in the wrong direction in this country so i think you know that may play a part i don't know yeah well yeah i mean it might have played a part in intended figures winning for the best i think it must have right yeah i mean i didn't look and viola davis said something during the kind of backstage press conference after she won her supporting actress award she said they won because they did the work and they were great and that is absolutely true denzel washington is fantastic and fences my favorite male performance of the year hidden figures is a genuinely good movie Mm -hmm. so it's so regardless of any sort of social issues these winners were deserving yes but yes there is the added element and i think that the optics alone of seeing 
the Hidden Figures cast on stage, Denzel Washington on stage, Viola Davis, Mahershala Ali in these major categories. Yeah. Like that's inspiring and makes mm-hmm. me, you know, made me feel hopeful at least that, you know, Holly weird, out of touch coastal liberals are doing something right amidst, you know. I guess what's frustrating to me is if we were voting for a film based all good films, but based slightly on social issues, then I just wish Moonlight were the what, the things that people were picking because I really wanted that cast to win the ensemble award because that was a chance for those kids mm-hmm. who we can't nominate in an individual category to get an award. Not to knock hidden figures because I really do think that's a lovely movie, but I just I think Moonlight is on a whole nother level of doing sort of what Mike's talking about in terms of delivering empathy for someone who has felt rejected and other their whole life. That's what Moonlight is, you know, so to see fences or to see hidden figures winning above it, not that, you know, no one could have won over Denzel in that category for that, for Moonlight, but that ensemble award really, really bothered me, I guess. Yeah. And I'm going to just devil's advocate that, which the way this stuff works rightly or wrongly is that you, you know, this year for Moonlight to have all the nominations it's had is quite an achievement for that's, Moonlight. Yeah, that's the victory. And over time, it's like you rack up the nominations. They do become career awards and they also are very, people are very aware of the industry and how much money things make. Yeah. And, I, and Moonlight I, I came out think. months ago and yeah. Figures is newer, you know, so there, that might just be a simple like, oh, that was the one I most, you know. But I agree with you, Joanna, that artistically, Moonlight is operating at a higher oh, level than Hidden yeah. Figures by a mile. Right. But, you know, they know, they love Octavia Spencer. You know, Taraji's got Empire behind her now. Janelle Monet's had a great year. She is in Moonlight, so. Right, and the uplifting true story sort of thing is typical award season fodder. Yeah, it's an easier sell. It's more palatable than the quite actually challenging subject matter of Moonlight, which I think makes it a better film, but also makes it a harder sell when you're just getting a giant consensus award. Yeah, I think the presence of Captain Fantastic and Moonlight with these nominations is both a way of there's, I feel like every year there's films where there's just a lot of good performances and they're all too small or they're by kids or there's just not really a good way to hand out an individual award. And Moonlight had this problem in the very beginning where it was like, who are you going to nominate? And then eventually they just settled yeah. on Mahershala Ali. Not by accident. He's great in the movie, but it easily could have been Andre Holland, it seems to me. Or it easily Trevante could have Rose. been Trevante. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I think I'm really with Joanna that Moonlight really exemplifies what ensemble acting means to me. Yeah, that true. makes me kind of wish it had gotten in there. But it's kind of hard to hold anything against hidden figures. Well, we haven't talked about La La Land. Yeah. And, and, and is it just the fact that La La Land doesn't really have much of an ensemble because it's such a two-hander with an assist from John Legend? Or is this a sign of trouble for La La Land? Well, I mean, because La 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 wasn't nominated for the SAGs, right? Which, you know, I had to sort of initially interpret it as, oh, it's just because it's too small a cast. But I don't know. I mean, I think that maybe there could be something bigger afoot, although La La still feels pretty anointed. I have a question for you, sort of Oscar campaign experts to answer, which is so many of the speeches were political. And then we got to Emma Stone, who I think was very pointedly both at the Golden Globes and at SAG, not very political. She might have said one or two things in her SAG speech. She said something along the lines of it being a a tough time in the world and wanting to... And we need this escape and stuff like that. So that sort of feels like a campaign thing to me than than anything else. And it, it to me, and I don't want to like assume too much, but to me it seems like she's being very careful, which Brie Larson I think was similarly very careful last year in her campaign versus someone like Mahershala Ali who goes up, wins this award and says, by the way, I'm Muslim. I converted. This is my story, but you're going to give me an Oscar anyway. You feel like Emma is recognizing that it's still work to keep pushing La La Land over the line. That's my question. What What do you guys think? I mean, I think Mahershala is saying I'm Muslim. My mother's a pastor. That is a really compelling story. That's something that was really worth saying. And I thought felt very pointed. 
given the context of the immigration ban that happened just a few days before, it's hard to think of what Emma Stone, I mean, maybe she's got a personal story, but I think, you know, if you insert yourself too much into it, especially when it was about immigrants and Muslims specifically, I think she was probably wise not to make it too much about herself and kind of nod to what was going on in the world, but not go too deep into it. Yeah, he had the opportunity there to to introduce himself and define a narrative that was an amazingly compelling narrative yeah. and timely. Whereas it is a little trickier for her because we know Emma Stone, we love Emma Stone. All she, what she's trying to do is not fuck anything up. I think basically, <laughs> aren't they all? Honestly, right. like, <laughs> that's all I mean. I just feel like she seems careful, and Brie Larson felt careful. That's not an insult. It's just sort of a fact that she's not sort of Jennifer Lawrencing her way and being like, I be Meryl or anything like that. You know, she's just sort of like, thank you for this. I'm just going to hold tight to the goal line. I feel like the year that Jennifer Lawrence said I beat Meryl, though, was the year she didn't win the Oscar, right? Didn't she do that when she was winning for American Hustle? I don't know. I might be remembering it. Jennifer just got a got a Jennifer. Do you know what I mean? Like she's just like <laughs> Kanye West or something. Like she's just her personality is what it is. Yeah. Whereas I think Emma's a very different she's kind a, of She's a, you know, lifelong theater kid. She wants this. She has a sort of rigor and discipline. Emma. Yeah, Emma yeah. Stone does. You know, like an Anne Hathaway does, like a Brie Larson does. It's just the approach is just different and so it's going to manifest in a different kind of speech. I mean, maybe at the Oscars she'll be bigger because it's the last thing. And, and I'm assuming she's going to win, right? Yeah. We're, we're all sort of well, it'll also be really interesting if things continue going this way and she is the only white acting winner, which it could definitely happen. Yeah. And that also puts her in an odd position. I mean, white acting winners are very common, but that yeah. would that'd be really interesting if that photo op happens where they clink all their Oscars and it's a... Uh, Denzel Washington, Viola Davis, Mahershala Ali, and Emma Stone. And again, everyone deserving and, you know... Absolutely. A ...perfectly reasonable outcome. That's the other thing I want to talk about. Something that I, you know... For better or worse, probably worse, I engage with a lot of people on Twitter. And something I keep seeing is people <laughs> complain. I know, is people complaining about Moonlight or Hidden Figures or Fences and this being a political statement, which we just admitted that there are some optics on this. But like the thing, if you're listening to this podcast, you already know. So I'm preaching the choir. But the thing is, the Oscars are always political. Yeah, absolutely. It's never the best performance or the best movie automatically wins. That's not how this thing works. And so if the politics are, about making a statement about the state of our country versus who, you know, Harvey Weinstein is pushing forth. It's still politics one way or the other. So that really frustrates me because it just it's people who jump into the Oscar race conversation right at the end and don't understand like I learned listening to this podcast about all the lunches and all the screenings and all all the palms that are shaking. You know, like it's just it's a lot. Yeah. I mean, this Oscar season was started two years ago with the first year of Oscar so white. The seeds were planted then and that has kind of resulted in you know, putting money behind fences or giving an award season push to Moonlight. I mean, it's a years long process that leads to this stuff. Yeah. I mean, actually, I think it's a rare bit of good news around right yeah. now that and again, I, I keep saying this because I want to stick to the principle that I really care about, which is not who wins the specific awards, but that there's opportunities and that there's resources available to people. But it seems like more resources and more opportunities and more visibility came to films with different perspectives yeah. uh, because of the controversy last year. It actually worked. Yeah. It took two years of controversy. Protest works. Yeah. Hint, hint. Imagine that. <laughs> well, I mean, so we're going to have Rebecca joining us a little bit to talk about her kind of on the ground experience of the Producers Guild Awards, which happened 24 hours after the executive order. But 
I mean, do we feel like there were a lot of people across the country watching the SAGs being like, shut up, Hollywood actors? Or yes. did, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there were. I was like, keep talking Hollywood actors. I mean, I, that yeah. David Harbour moment was a little bit absurd and over the top, especially because it was that show. He tried to kind of politicize Stranger Things, which was like, eh, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, they're going to keep fighting for the good fight by making season two of Stranger God Things. God damn it, it didn't feel good to watch. Even when he made a not at all veiled reference to the neo-Nazi Mr. Spencer getting punched in the face, you know, yeah. like the whole thing felt good. And it made me excited for the Oscars, to be honest. Yeah. Well, my question about the SAG Awards is, do people watch the SAG Awards who would say, shut Probably up, not. Hollywood stars? Because, like, not uh, that many people, people watch sure. that, you know? And, you know, like, for Ashton Kutcher to kick it off with an, you know, you're like, okay, here comes Ashton, Ashton Kutcher. Ashton major investor in Uber, which was being protested at the time. Right. Complicated. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. It's interesting because I think, you know, we're in such a different time. In some ways, it feels like a throwback to Nixon or worse. Uh, and we're in such a different time than any of those times. You know, in all those in all those cases, when you look at history, you've got this, you know, what Steve Bannon, frankly, is trying to push is this idea, this old fashioned idea of like a moral majority. And we're just not that country anymore. And the fact that right away the entire Hollywood establishment was united in saying this doesn't represent our values and we have a completely different story to tell about what America should be. I found that heartening, but it's also there's a big divide in this country. There's not a middle ground like there used to be, I don't think. So that's what's interesting. Also, it's a little bit lipstick on the pig of Hollywood, how repulsive it is. And we are part of it that Hollywood spends six actual months of the year patting itself on the back i mean it really is disgusting. 12 months let's be honest 12 months hey mike to be fair we're doing some of the padding too i know <laughs> i know i'm saying we're part of it but that's what kutcher said right like his intro was like not my america he's like and now we're gonna celebrate ourselves yeah he did a good job of that really weird transition he acknowledged yeah. it which was well and it's helping to justify you know why any of this can happen i mean there have it's, been it's an expression of cultural power versus the hard power that's all gone on the there other have side been of the some uh, genuine calls to cancel the oscars since the sag Award. yeah, yeah I, saw, I saw a lot of that on twitter i think mark harris might have been sort of advocating that and kyle buchanan from new york magazine responded he said it's going to be three to four hours of you know left-wing liberal messaging against this stuff and so it has value and i sort of tend to agree i mean now is not the time to shut up and i don't think that the oscars are a perfect vehicle for the sort of political messaging that needs to get out into the world but it's a widely watched platform oh and you can't give trump the satisfaction of killing the oscars no exactly no, no way he wants to watch the oscars i was trying to figure out who could boycott that would make the loudest statement because you know in the foreign language oscar ferrati not being able to go his actress not being able to go that is a compelling narrative and it's very interesting but i was wondering if there was an actor a huge star who could make a stand by not going and i don't think anyone like that is nominated Meryl Woody Allen but like, <laughs> but like last year let's say Leonardo DiCaprio hadn't come mm-hmm. when like the narrative was all about Leonardo DiCaprio finally getting his Oscar and Leo's like you know what I'm not coming well and given the diversity that we're talking about it would be a bad year to do that this yeah. is a good year to show right. up and celebrate the diversity mm-hmm. of, of right. the America that we want to be you know as repulsive as I admit to finding the whole thing on some moral level but we should all stand up and make it really obvious to America that like the director of the salesman should be here. Yeah. You know, you that know should be a big moment. And I think that any, this is kind of, it sounds like a strange thing to say, but any opportunity to put another dent in the armor of, oh, just, you know, out of touch celebrities. And it's like, who's the president? 
who's the rich yeah. reality TV star? Yeah. Right. Like that argument is losing value. And so I think that what that means is that then the actual message starts being paid attention to because the weight of, oh, they're just an out of touch rich person celebrity is eroding because, well, you know. The president is one. And, and for the millions of people who are on this side of history, it's encouraging to see all those powerful people with, you know, big careers that could be harmed by a government potentially just say we're against this. We're standing up against. Yeah, it. I mean, there I are people protesting in airports in Birmingham, Alabama, and those people aren't in a liberal bubble and they don't necessarily right. feel like everyone around them agrees with them. So having yeah. that kind of visibility I think can just help you kind of have the energy to keep going. Yeah. And, and I think it'd be interesting to see what happens over time if the studio starts seeing numbers go down yeah, well, as a result. The yeah. people's courage may flag. I, I feel like know. maybe they weren't going to see Moonlight anyway. So they can mm-hmm. this, this guys can well, see what they want. I, I'm very curious. And there's no way we'll ever be able to quantify this. But I'm very curious how much of a permission Meryl Streep's speech at the Golden Globes gave other people to mm. be as vocal. Great question. She's bulletproof, right? She just is. Yeah. But she can embolden these other people who have more on the line than she does to follow her lead because she is such a leader in that town. You're so right. And that was really the only big statement at the Globes, wasn't well, it? And or at the, the biggest statement. I think mm-hmm. the difference mm-hmm. between the Globes and the SAGs is that the Globes happened before inauguration. He hadn't actually done anything as president yet. So yes. Meryl kind of got up there and was like, listen, Donald Trump is not a good person, which is a message we'd heard a lot of and by the time of the sags it was like this is a specific thing that he has done this is not a personal thing this is an issue thing and i think that by the time of the oscars coming around there's only going to be more of that to talk about who god knows what's coming between now and then that we'll all be upset about by then yeah we're assuming that we're going to be here i mean yeah no no that's true that's true yeah (laughs) you come to the new yorker radio hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, Well, now feels like a good time to bring in Rebecca Keegan, who was on hand to witness a lot of this and will continue to be as this very interesting award season continues. So Rebecca Keegan, Vanity Fair's Hollywood correspondent, thank you so much for hopping on Skype and joining us. Hello. Happy to be here. So we were talking a little bit about the kind of busy weekend of award shows that were infused with activism. And on Saturday night, you were at the Producers Guild Awards, which aren't on TV, which I imagine makes them very fun and uh, raucous. But based on your write-up for the site, it was also very political. Yeah, this was a really interesting PGAs. The fact that there weren't any cameras there meant, I think, that you were seeing Hollywood's very authentic reaction to the news that was unfolding. Just as the red carpet for the show was getting started, the two judges had come out against Trump's immigration executive orders, and everybody's Twitter feed was full of news about the protests at the airports. So it was like this weirdly incongruous black tie event happening at the time of this big news event. Mm -hmm. Anyway, everybody was talking about it. Everybody on stage was talking about it. And there were probably more mentions of the ACLU than back-end points, which is just a very (laughs) rare thing for this kind of Hollywood event. So it wasn't the kind of speechifying that we saw at the SAGs or at the Golden Globes where it's, you know, speaking to the audience at home and trying to raise visibility. This is just genuinely what was on people's minds. Yeah, that's what's so interesting about it. I mean, 
I think in some cases at the SAG, sometimes I think people were actually speaking to the room of like-minded colleagues. They're aware, of course, of the TV cameras, but they really were looking at each other. But with the PGAs, for sure they were doing that. I mean, some of the people who had the most outspoken speeches were John Legend, who talked about feeling conflicted about even being at the event with his wife, Chrissy Teigen. Also, Megan Allison spoke about sort of being someone in a rare position of having money and power and the ability to do something about what she perceived were political injustices. Mm. And she was encouraging her other colleagues who also have money and power to, as she said, quote unquote, change the rules. Huh. Was the room seemingly like 100% receptive to all this? Or could you suss out any people who maybe were not against this order or this president? If there were people who who disagreed with the political mood at the podium, they were awfully quiet. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, Mark Burnett received an award for The Voice, and one of the more remarkable moments of the evening was that he got some booze and there were some whispers of, where are the tapes? In reference to his time on The Apprentice, of course, uh, when Donald Trump was hosting and the possibility of there being some outtakes from that that would have made an impact on the election. So the room was fully, I mean, it was one of the most kind of pointedly focused, angry Hollywood audiences I've ever seen. And the anger was all directed at Donald Trump. So the fact that this was happening, as you're saying, while news was breaking, I think, you know, I think everyone in the country was thinking about this one way or another. Do you feel like this energy is going to keep up? There's a lot of award shows to go between now and the Oscars. Yeah, I mean, one of the sort of dilemmas I think that people face is that this industry, of course, has been liberal for decades and is now more than ever. However, the audience that presumably will be tuning in to the Oscars on ABC February 26th is not monolithic politically, is not necessarily share all of Hollywood's views. So how do you kind of thread that needle? If you're the Oscar producers, Mike DeLuca and Jennifer Todd, or host Jimmy Kimmel, how do you respond to what seems like an authentic outpouring of activism from the industry that may be at odds with the way some people watching on TV at home are feeling? We were talking earlier about there being a sentiment that we've seen on Twitter and elsewhere that like, oh, they should just cancel the Oscars, you know, in protest or whatever. Have you heard anything either way on in that argument? I'm of the mind that they should do it because it could provide a good platform for, you know, speaking out. But I know other people feel differently. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I did see some people talking particularly when the Iranian filmmaker Asghar Farhadi said he wasn't going to come to the show, there were some people saying, well, they should just cancel it entirely. You know, I have to say the Oscars happened the year after 9-11. They happened when other major events and crises were unfolding in our country. They've tended to provide a sort of a moment of either catharsis or escape for a lot of people watching. And I can't imagine that they would be canceled because of the political polarization happening in the country right now. Do you feel like mood has shifted since Meryl Streep's Golden Globe speech? It feels like that speech, like she really stuck her neck out, like obviously Donald Trump responded. But since the inauguration, is there a galvanization that kind of unites everybody in a way that maybe before they would have been like, oh, well, keep your mouth shut. You shouldn't be as political. Does everyone now feel emboldened to do so? I think a little bit. Streep, as you say, sort of made it safe for other people to speak their minds. I also think, whereas immediately after the election, I heard some people talking about, geez, maybe we're a little out of touch. What should we do here? Should we take a look at how we're not connecting with middle America? I have not heard any of that since the presidency has gotten underway. And you've seen events like the 
controversial executive orders and the um, sort of opening weekend obsession with crowd size, people seem to be now getting more solidified in their feelings of being against Trump. Whereas before they thought, well, let's maybe wait and see. Maybe he's going to pivot. Let's try and be open. That seems to have shot for most of the people I'm talking to. Given that we all learned our lesson about predicting things during the election itself, that said, what would you predict for the Oscars? I mean, you've been to a lot of these award shows in the past. Where are we headed? Like, what will the like show what, itself yeah, be like? Yeah, I mean, like, do you do you feel like we are going to see more political Oscars or maybe cooler heads, not cooler heads, but maybe, you know, the tone will shift between now and then. I guess it must shift between now and then, but I, it's hard for me to imagine it not being political to some degree. Yeah, I think there's no question that the big supervillain in Hollywood right now is Donald Trump, and I would be shocked if he is not a major figure in the 2017 Oscars. It's also interesting how much what people talk about that night will have to do with what's in the news in just the days leading up to the event. Yeah. The interesting thing is, I think if you look at some of the speeches that tend to be the most effective, they often are the ones like the one Mahershala Ali made at the SAG Awards, where he talked about his own personal experience as a black Muslim man whose mother is a Christian minister, and their sort of personal coming to grips with those differences. Those speeches can be very meaningful and a telecast in contrast sometimes to people talking in a broad sort of removed way about an issue. Yeah. Don't you want to watch the movie about Mahershala Ali and his mom? Yeah, totally. <laughs> I would I would for sure go to that. She's probably a fascinating woman. Yes. Yeah. No, his whole life is fascinating. And it's been fascinating to watch him on the awards trail sort of slowly share more about himself. Well, he's in a position as kind of a he's a newcomer where he you know might not want to be taking risks because people don't know who he is. And if he alienates someone with a speech, like there go his Oscar chances. But we were talking about earlier in the show, he kind of felt like he could make a speech from the heart, whereas Emma Stone feels like, you know, she wanted to acknowledge the political situation without making a big speech. Is there a sense that you can endanger your Oscar chances by speaking up at this point? I don't think you can endanger your Oscar chances by speaking up. I do think you can help them by having a particularly well thought out and um, sort of authentically delivered speech. You know, I think sometimes speeches like Emma Stone's, where, as you say, it just sometimes feels like she was figuring it out as she was ascending the steps. Sometimes you just sort of scratch your head and go, that's a that's a little bit of an opportunity lost from a standpoint of reaching Academy voters watching at home. Speaking of opportunity lost at the SAGs, the big biggest surprise, I think, was Denzel Washington beating Casey Affleck, which we talked about earlier in the episode. But I'm curious on your perspective, does that feel like a major narrative shift or is it kind of like a fluke and Casey will kind of continue on as he has been earlier in the season? I think that's a big deal. I think... Denzel is incredibly well-loved. I think he has a strong studio backing him in Paramount, which is really throwing a lot of weight behind fences in terms of for your consideration ads. They're keeping it in a lot of theaters and they have the money to do it, which is something that some of the sort of smaller competitors might not be able to do. You know, companies like A24 that are sort of new on the scene. The Oscar campaigns are about a lot of things, and to a certain extent, they're about money and about a studio's ability to sort of help finance them. Now you have Denzel emerging, clearly, you know, beloved by his peers in the Screen Actors Guild and really well-liked in the Academy, too. I think one of the reasons people are really loving Denzel, too, is that he has been beating the bushes like crazy for Viola Davis to win. Mm -hmm. He is obsessed with her winning an Oscar. And people, as with his SAG Awards speech where he made it about his less famous co-stars in that film, theater actors who he had cast, 
you know, the Academy really likes that. They like to see that sort of humility. Yeah, I mean, he's already got two Oscars, so what does he need to uh, really beat the bushes for himself to win a third? He doesn't. He doesn't, indeed, yeah. Well, La La Land wasn't nominated for the SAG Ensemble Award, so it didn't win. We were kind of talking about whether or not that says anything for La La Land. Do you have any sense that it's anything but a nonstop victory for La La Land? As you say, because it wasn't up in the category, I don't think it's super meaningful. I still think La La Land is the film to beat. If you look at all the many crafts that compose the Academy, it's much more than actors, which the Screen Actors Guild was. And La La Land has been nominated in, what is it, 14 nominations? 14. I mean, 14. So that's all of these branches, whether you're looking at sound or editing or music, that's just a lot of individuals in the Academy who have said, I really like this film. So that bodes extremely well for a best picture film for La La Land. I really think it's theirs to lose. I got to say, I'm kind of cringing about the idea of an Oscars coming and people win for La La Land and say, this movie means this in this difficult time. And here's why La La Land is important. I feel like there's a way to be political at award shows. And then there's a way that you stretch. And I worry about La La Land stretching because it doesn't really have resonance with politics, I don't think. Well, yeah, I mean, they've been sort of on the campaign trail. The La La Land team has been leaning a lot on this. This is for the dreamers uh, speech. And I thought John Legend did them an extraordinary favor at the PGA's by basically casting those talking points aside. And he at the PGA's talked about sort of the larger political issues in a really authentic way. He talked about the movie being shot in L.A., which, P.S., is a big deal for many in the Academy, and the fact that L.A. is a city of immigrants. So you could see a sort of tortured attempt to make a larger narrative about Lila Land, unless it's coming from a really authentic place. I don't think people will go for it. Well, Rebecca, we will certainly be talking to you again as the award season continues. I'm really excited to hear from you when you go to the nominees luncheon, which is kind of the source of the great awkward family photo that all the nominees take. So <laughs> good luck out there and we'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. So now we have Orlando Van Einsendel, the director of The White Helmets, and Joanna Natasagara, the producer. Both in London, you're in separate cars. We have so many technical things to do this. So thank you so much both for being here. Thank you for well, having us. Thank, thank you for having us. So I wanted to get uh, kind of right to the point because, you know, this film was obviously very timely because it's about the crisis in Syria and Aleppo and these humanitarian workers working there to rescue people. But then when the uh, immigration ban, the executive order happened last Friday, it became super timely for those of us in the United States because, Joanna, as you said in an interview, the heroes of your film likely wouldn't be able to attend the Oscars because of the ban. I'm curious if anything has changed since Friday, if you guys have learned anything, if it's possible that they will be able to attend the Oscars or if they still seem banned from the United States. Yeah, well, I mean, we're still working on it. Um, you know, there doesn't seem to be a lot of clarity around the issue. The head of the White Helmets, Ride Salah, has traveled to uh, the U.S. several times and has a valid visa in his passport. So we're very much hoping that that, you know, that might mean that he is part of an exception or that, you know, in fact, sense is just found and, and he is able to travel to the U.S. Khalid Khatib, our cinematographer, who is also a White Helmet, does not have a, a visa as yet and his application is pending. So we really hope that both of them will make it, but we don't have any clarity at the current time. So uh, Asghar Farhadi, the Iranian director who is nominated for The Salesman, has said that he wouldn't attend even if he was allowed to because he thinks it's an unjust law. For you guys, do you think it's more important to have them there and have the visibility for the story than any boycott? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we were obviously over the moon when we first found out that we'd be nominated for an Oscar last week, but that, that only lasted about 24 hours until we found out that they might not be able to come, which is really 
put a damper on things. These guys have been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. They've had support and endorsement from governments around the world, the United Nations, George Clooney, and um, you know, and they've won a host of awards. Ultimately, we think them not being able to come to the Oscars is firstly a uh, really missed opportunity for the White Helmets as a group to be recognized. But also, we think it's a missed opportunity for America. You know, the world is so divided and the message of compassion that comes from the White Helmets is, is a message that just needs to be heard so much right now. I think to be clear here, guys, you know, we really feel that the community is responding in, in various ways and each, and each of those ways is entirely valid and each filmmaker and each film subject has their own choice to make. I think we, you know, in, in consultation with the White Helmets, feel that this is, you know, that this is the right thing for, for us and for this film at this time. And of course, you know, the situation is, is still unfolding. So watch this space. Yeah. Well, I mean, this film, even before any of this happened, it was going to be unfolding. You know, since the movie was made, I think the situation in Aleppo has changed multiple times. The movie is available on Netflix. It's a 40 minute long documentary short, so it's incredibly accessible to people. So for people who have watched it, are there updates on the status of the White Helmets or their work since you guys made the film and released it? Well, yes, likewise, we unfortunately, you know, well, fortunately, in some ways, decided to focus on eastern Aleppo, which is one of the cities in Syria that was worst hit by aerial bombardment last year and, and eventually, you know, fell to the regime at the end of the year as the global community watched. Our protagonists all were still inside eastern Aleppo as that unfolded. And we went through some really, really tense times, tense months at the end of 2016, you know, hoping every day that we wouldn't see their name on the news mm -hmm. uh, as, you know, as one of the dead. And there were many dead every day. Um, luckily, so luckily, you know, all of them got out uh, with their, their families, but they lost many colleagues and many friends and family. Um, it was an incredibly difficult period for them. They're, they're now on the whole, still working as white helmets, still volunteering in other parts of Syria, still still doing their work as we speak. That's really remarkable, given, you know, what you see of what their work entails in the film. Yeah. Orlando, when you did an interview about the, the last film that you two made together, Virunga, which was also an Oscar nominee, you said you wanted to tell a positive story from a place, in that case, Africa, where you hear so many negative stories. I mean, when you're making The White Helmets, which I think does have a lot of positive stories involved. I mean, there's these scenes where you see uh, the miracle baby pulled from the rubble. But how hard is it to kind of face what you have to see to get to the positivity? I mean, there's I think you guys said that you couldn't include 90 percent of the footage that they had captured in the war zones because it would just be so hard to watch. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're right. This isn't the easiest film to watch, but the White Helmets really are the closest thing Syria has to superheroes. Part of the reason Syria is such a difficult issue to engage with is, is because it's so sad. It's so upsetting. This war's been going on for so long. The White Helmets are a story of hope. And, you know, we, we think that's a, that's a story which is much easier for people to engage with. And it's a story which really resonates. Joanna, I assume you agree. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, you know, it sounds counterintuitive to make positive stories from war zones. But, you know, we're so easily affected by the news. And, and obviously, some of the most dramatic things happen on the news. It's then very easy to forget about the civilians that are left behind on the ground and what the realities of the situation is like for them. I think through the White Helmet's eyes, you see that. 
you know, we hear a lot about the refugee crisis, as we rightly should do, and we hear a lot about terrorism and ISIS, and the white helmets are the positive story left behind of, of Syrians working for Syria. So, yeah, we, we hope that comes across in the film. Well, the white helmets themselves are really apolitical. They say several times that they will pull anyone from the rubble, no matter what side they're fighting on. You know, you have one person who was a former rebel who decided to save lives instead. But I think mm-hmm. that a film like this is kind of necessarily political just for the way that it shows Syrians and Muslim men and people kind of doing this work in a way that is so rarely depicted. And especially when we're mm-hmm. kind of having a, you know, a self-created immigration crisis here. Do you, yeah. I mean, do you, do you feel that? impulse in your work? Yeah. Do you feel like you're just telling a human story or do you kind of feel a, a, an urgency in that? No, you're right. You know, we choose very much to share stories from those who have voices or narratives that are underrepresented or misrepresented, you know, in this case, misrepresented. You're right. The White Helmets that we filmed with, 30 of them, every single one was a practicing Muslim male. And we lived with them, you know, in, in southern Turkey for over five weeks. I can honestly say this group of men are the gentlest, kindest, most considerate group of men I have ever lived with for, you know, for any amount of time. And certainly we're very proud to show that picture, you know, of a religion that's so misunderstood to the world and especially in the context of what's happening in the Trump administration. I think we'd both really like President Trump to watch this film and, you know, reconsider what people are like from some of the countries which are listed on the ban. Yeah, I think there's this... Uh... One of the most moving moments, I mean, I think it's a moving moment itself where they pull, uh, his name is Mahmoud the baby, when you meet him Mahmoud, later. Yeah. Um, when they pull him from the rubble and you hear them all yelling, Alu Akbar, which, you know, means mm-hmm. God is great. And I think we hear in movies and mm-hmm. the news in one yeah. very specific context and they are just so joyful. It's said in such a genuine, joyful way. Yeah. That's a really powerful thing to see. And I think, you know, one of the many things that I would like for President Trump to see. Yeah, we, we totally agree with you. You know, you can see how easily narratives are mistold. So, you know, I guess sometimes we see our films as a correction of that. So for you guys, I think Orlando was saying that you'll be back in Los Angeles for the nominees luncheon and then obviously for the Oscars. When you go from doing work like you do in kind of dangerous places to wearing ball gowns and walking on the Oscars red carpet. Is there a cognitive dissonance or do you feel like it's a nice treat (laughs) after uh, the kind of difficult work? For sure, there is a moment of cognitive dissonance, absolutely. But also, you know, we really feel that these moments are so important to magnify the voices of the people in our films. We recognize just how, what a spotlight and what a privilege it is to have our film elevated at the Oscars. And it's a fantastic platform to continue to talk about the issues. And, and we're really proud to be able to stand there and shout loudly about the White Helmets, who, as Joanna said, are some of the most incredible people we've ever come across. Well, I wish you guys the best of luck and for the White Helmets participants to be able to make it to the Oscars. And so I want to see you all on the red carpet looking fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. Said away. Yes. Thank you guys so Thank much. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you so much for listening. And if you can, rate and review us on iTunes. We appreciate it. We are really trying to build up our listenership as award season continues because obviously it's a really interesting one. You can find us all at VanityFair.com and on Twitter at Little Gold Men. And we're all individually on Twitter. I'm at Katie Rich, Richard. Rylaws. And Joanna. Winona Ryder loves pizza. (laughs) (laughs) Let's all retweet that video so that people can see it for themselves. And Mike. Deplorable USSR. (laughs) Yeah, you all know where to find us. So that's Something, yeah. <laughs> uh, pet, pet Putin Pepe. There you go. This episode was edited and produced by Alana Milner, and thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. 
And this week's award for the best explanation for Winona Ryder's facial expressions at the SAG Awards goes to Richard Lawson. She's a she's a you know lifelong theater kid. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, who should be the mayor of New York? We all support yeah, that. we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.